Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the third installment in my Batman movie review series. Today I am reviewing Batman Forever. This is your host, Corbin. We took a little break last week. We, Alan and I both reviewed together. Yes, Alan was back. We reviewed Jurassic World Dominion, capping off the so far... I don't even know what you call it. This the sixth installments in the Jurassic franchise. We have reviewed all of those films now, linked to those below if you want to go ahead and listen to our reviews. But before that, I reviewed both Tim Burton Batman films. Now we're on to the Joel Schumacher phase, which really wasn't that long of a turnaround. It was less than three years between those time periods. So on to Batman Forever, which came out in 95. It came out the year I was born. Now, last week, I did release your guide to Batman Forever, so definitely check that one out so you can learn what happened. Why didn't Burton come back? Why isn't Marlon Wayans playing Robin or Billy D. Williams playing Two-Face? Where's Michael Keaton? We've got a whole new Batman. There's so much that was changed, yet sort of carried over. Um, You're not going to want to miss your guide to Batman Forever. That's the first link in the description below. And while you're down there, we've got timestamps if you're ready to jump straight into the review, or if you just want to know my rating and recommendation for this controversial, divisive entry in the franchise, we've got those timestamps, so you can jump straight there. Of course, links to all of our social pages, so you can connect with us, and all kinds of great goodies down there, even a curated list of episodes to listen to after this one, so check that out. So back in 1995, I was not present at the theatrical screening of this film, I was just a few months old, just a new babe in the world. The first time I remember seeing this movie was, and it was PG-13, so, you know, and I know the other ones, I think the other ones were PG-13. This one, I believe I saw when I lived in San Antonio, Texas, when I was around six years old. Um, My parents were out, um, we were at a friend's house, they were watching us, and they had Batman Forever on VHS. So I checked that out. I also remember watching Dragonheart there. Um, And they had a pool too. So pool, Dragonheart, Batman Forever. What more could you ask for, especially when you're six years old? So uh, I remember having a fun time with that. And as far as I can tell, I I saw it then. I believe I saw it one other time. I just remembered very little about this movie. This one didn't quite have... Really, the only one that ever stuck with me was Burton's Batman 89 um, despite owning Batman Returns on DVD for decades, honestly, for years, this one was never in my collection. Actually, I'll save that for the end, whether, whether and why this one did enter into my collection. But nevertheless, let's look at the theatrical trailer. So if I was, what, target audience for this back then, let's say I'm 10 years old, uh, between 20 years old, if I'm 10 years old, I think this theatrical trailer is bad and uninteresting. Now, it may have caught my attention. It's three and a half minutes long. It's horribly edited. Uh, it is using Danny Elfman's music, uh, even though Elfman does not come back to score this film. It's shocking that this is the trailer 
um, even though it is on the Blu-ray as the theatrical trailer. Even as an adult, I would not be interested in this. So if that's the only trailer I saw, I probably wouldn't give this movie a second look until it came on home video when I would definitely rent it. So no, this trailer alone would not get me into theaters. Now, if there was more hype, probably once I heard how big it was at the box office opening weekend, and I probably would have saw some more promotional material by that time, I probably, I mean, who are we kidding? I probably would be in theaters opening weekend since it is a Batman movie. But if for some reason I couldn't make it, then it probably would be in the second or third week I'd be purchasing my ticket. Now, I do believe I did have toys from this film. I know I have at least all of the iterations of the Batplane from every theatrical movie, and I did actually have the boat to this as well. I still do. Uh, they're in storage right now until I've got the proper room to display them. But nevertheless, I had these figures. I really enjoyed playing with them. Even though the movie didn't mean a lot to me, I did enjoy these playing with these toys when I was a kid. Now, if you don't want the movie spoiled for you, it is currently streaming on HBO Max. Of course, you can pick it up. It's been newly released on 4K in the past few years. You can pick up digitally, physically. This one's easy to get your hands on. So go ahead and check out the film, watch it, come back and click play here on the podcast, and we'll be ready to talk about it. So the plot of this movie is really, really simple. Batman fights... Two-Face, Two-Face is more so just a thorn in his side, and I guess he blames him for getting acid on his face in a courtroom. That should be more of the bailiff's job for not keeping him safe. Um, Riddler wants to steal people's mind waves, and they team up for some reason. Um, Bruce and Batman fall in love with Dr. Chase Meridian, played by Nicole Kidman, in a fairly reductive role that we'll talk about. And Robin is finally in the movie. So, yeah, that's the plot in a nutshell. Well, let's talk about the opening of this movie. Now, it does have some really weird opening credits. Um, they're not too bad. They're not Superman 4 level bad. And I, I think the title of this movie, Batman Forever, is kind of goofy. It feels like some something, you know, ridiculous they would say in the 60s TV series. Also, the opening, like bassoon or like tuba type noise uh, really sets the tone that this is going to be a little darker but then we get some brighter credits uh, not my favorite credits sequence of course we immediately get to see the new suit the new bat cave and this suit's supposed to be similar to the keaton one um he's going to get a really different one by the end of course we got this new gaudy batmobile that looks really awful i don't like it at all it's way too over the top and of course, we know this is going to be a comedy or at least a dark comedy when Alfred says, would you like to take a sandwich, sir? And Batman says, I'll take drive through. Of course, that's kind of ridiculous. Now, there is a deleted scene, as I mentioned. I don't know if I mentioned it here or in your guide, but originally this film was going to open with Two-Face escaping from Arkham Asylum. This probably would make more sense as a setup for why he's already terrorizing the town, but nevertheless, it's an interesting choice of Schumacher's to jump straight into the action and not to give us really an origin of Two-Face except later on, and they call him Harvey Two-Face, which I find to be kind of goofy that they combined his names, but nevertheless, you just see a brief news clip of how he came to be and that he's a fairly recent villain terrorizing Gotham. 
But one of the most important things we notice right off the bat with the opening of this film is how toyetic it is. This movie just looks like a toy commercial or it just looks like toys come to life. There's also quite a few Dutch angles. They're not too bad, and I get it that it's Schumacher style, but just right off the bat, Schumacher is establishing his presence as the new filmmaker, as the new creative force behind this film. And of course, he has to introduce tons of characters, except for Robin, which we don't even meet till nearly halfway through the movie. Dr. Chase Meridian is on the scene of this bank heist vault thing for no reason whatsoever. She's been hired to by the police. She's there with Commissioner Gordon. I believe he's Commissioner Gordon anyways. She does nothing beside flirt with Batman and Bruce Wayne, even though she's hired supposedly or at least working with the government or the police department. It's really weird. But I am not sure quite yet if utilizing this campy atmosphere is going to be good or not. Now, I will say Val Kilmer, I think, has the voice down. It's not a particularly compelling or memorable Batman voice. He looks a little silly in the costume. He doesn't really have the same presence as Michael Keaton. Definitely not the same as anybody else. The jury's still out on George Clooney because I haven't seen that one yet. But... I mean, he's just kind of this warm body filling up the suit, animating the suit. It's just kind of crazy. Of course, the art style in this movie is incredibly heavy-handed, but it's a decent continuation of sorts from Batman Returns while breaking Schumacher's flair with lights especially. There are some crazy lights, but there is also um, a great kind of usage of this like really, really tall, elongated gothic architecture that... I could tell Burton really wanted to do, but this really seems to bring it to life in a way that Returns never could. Returns always felt like they were on a set. This just feels like something, almost some German expressionism. It's really well done, actually. Now, surprisingly, I'm going to go ahead and jump into Robin, but they're, the Flying Graysons, their costume is the original Robin costume, so it's fun to see that they did bring that original costume into it um of course how he's come to be called robin is incredibly dumb because every time someone was about to fall he would swoop in i flew in like a robin that's what his dad would always say i've never heard anybody even equate those two things or even think of like oh man you're flying in like a robin at least these are respectful original comic book origins for these characters and it's fun to see these scenes brought to life Alfred, I think, is probably utilized the best in this movie than any other. Even though he does some kind of sneaky things behind Bruce's back, he still seems to be helpful. He actually has more lines. He's not really an afterthought. I like seeing him in this movie. Of course, probably my favorite scene is when Batman falls through the skylight at Enigma's um, party. And it's an awesome shot of him just coming down through the skylight and landing then he does some crazy flip and starts fighting bad guys. And Jim Carrey's character says, your entrance was good. His was better. Uh, I really do like it. He jumps off the plane, which is something that Nolan will kind of do somewhat again um, in the Dark Knight. Even though this is CGI, and I'll talk about the CGI here in a little bit. I do like this jump. There is definitely some thrills. Your blood pressure does get up with some of this stuff. Now, I will say I'm kind of shocked that this is pretty risque for a children's movie. I don't really understand, and I get it, it's PG-13, it's not just for kids. 
I don't really understand where this risque atmosphere is coming from. To me, this is Schumacher's more adult intentions, you know, from Flatliners or St. Elmo's Fire kind of digging into this Freudian psychosexual stuff. It's just, I don't really see it having a place here in this movie that I do think is mostly for kids. But nevertheless, it is here. It's here quite a bit. So if you're going to watch this with your own kids, then I think there's some kind of frightening stuff in here too. It'll probably go over their head, but I couldn't help but notice it watching it this time. Now, the way that Bruce remembers himself falling into the cave flashback, I'll say that's probably the best one put to screen that I've ever seen. It's shot in black and white, I believe. It looks really good with him falling slowly into the cave and these bats surrounding him. And there's just this one large bat flying towards him. That's This is the stuff I think they brought Schumacher in for that he probably was known for with flatliners. And they said, you know what? He could probably do this with Batman. So he does it, and I'm pretty impressed with it. There actually is some light detective work in this. Uh, it's not very good, but nevertheless, at least they're trying to make him a detective of sorts. Now, I do enjoy some of the toyetic aspects of this movie. For instance, we get to see the bat boat, which I think is better than the bat sewer boat we get in the other thing. Um, also, the bat plane, how it hangs upside down, and once the light shines on it, it unfolds. That is actually brilliant. I really loved that. Um, I did laugh out loud, though, when Commissioner Gordon starts cheering and clapping, and Batman gives him a thumbs up as the bat plane swoops through the bat signal in the sky. It's really dumb. Um, also, how they play Battleship, the Two-Face, and the Riddler, and they put these giant mines in the ocean already, um, of course, the bat plane and boat get blown up far too easily, which is disappointing, but we do get our first bat sub, so that's unique. And, you know, I like the toyetic aspect of them getting new suits. Um, that was something I always looked forward to as a kid is, can I get a new suit? What if is the suit interchangeable? So getting to see him change the suit here is actually a cool idea. Now, Robin's suit is fine. I'm not crazy about it. I think it's probably the best they could do for the time period. And of course, the last little piece of trivia I'll note is there is a Dr. Burton. Clearly a nod to Tim Burton, especially kind of looks similar. And one of the things I found to be quite disappointing is the Riddler or Edward Nigma, however you want to call him, his introduction is quite uninteresting. He's talking about brain waves and he's really hamming it up like crazy. His also spurned behavior, you know, motivating him to become the Riddler is not very compelling. Also, his boss, it's kind of like this foreman at a factory, even though these people are supposedly top scientists at Bruce Wayne's company. Um, but they have this kind of overseer who's ashamed of him or embarrassed of him. It's really, really weird. Also, Harvey's motivation is dumb. Uh, we already talked about that a little bit. It should be noted it was Boss Maroney, who uh, is a comic baddie who threw the acid on him. The villains in here are really not here to provide anything compelling. They're just here to provide frenetic, eye-catching, eye-popping, you know, dazzling, crazy stuff to keep the kids interested and enough bizarreness going on, like utterly bizarre as far as the Riddler goes. He looks like... um. It looks like that creepy god thing from the end of Ghostbusters by the end of this movie. It's crazy. 
Commissioner Gordon is always a background idiot in these movies, but I will say the plot can't figure out how to juggle all these characters, especially Meridian. She is throwing herself at Batman, and I found it to be fairly reductive, actually, to relegate this female role to just having this, I don't know, straightforward, simplified fascination with Batman and just a sexual attraction to him, and it really goes nowhere. Uh, it's really strange. Also, she does disappear for at least 15 minutes of this movie, and the last time she comes back, she just starts kissing Bruce. Um, even though she had like broken up with him, it, it doesn't make any sense. I will say halfway through this movie, I'm pretty much checked out. I'm, I'm really wanting this thing to wrap up. Unfortunately, it's over two hours long. I think it's too long. Um, and as I've already mentioned, Val Kilmer is not really Michael Keaton. Maybe he's trying to play Keaton. I just found him to be fairly uninteresting, and some of his more dramatic roles were on the cutting room floor, but what we get with him here, he says little, he does little, he's not emotive, he's just kind of there. He's, he's big, big boring is what he is. He's a big bore. <laughs> this movie does use a decent amount of CGI, which looked really bad. I know they were impressed with it at the time, and at the time it was a big deal, but looking at it now, it is really bad. It's also pretty silly to think that Bruce taking in Dick Grayson, who looks at least 25, would be like, he would want to immediately adopt him. I get his heart goes out to him, but this guy looks to be a grown-up, and we know from Batman's line, he's at least a college student, so legally, I don't know why he would want to foster him or adopt him. That part doesn't make a lot of sense. Once you hit 45 minutes into the movie, you realize there's not much of a point to the story. And the point only comes 56 minutes in, which is close to halfway in, where you figure out Riddler's mind control is on every TV. He's become the new tech mogul of his age. There's just also a lot of randomness in this movie. Batman just randomly gets in a streetcar chase with Two-Face. Um, it just proves that there's just not a whole lot to this movie except to just kind of create exciting action set pieces and for kids to go out and buy the toys, buy the accessories so the Batmobile can drive up the wall. Uh, it's not enough to hold my attention as an adult. Also, why is Batman running away from Two-Face? He's literally running away from Two-Face instead of trying to stop him. So if Two-Face just terrorizing continually, um, we got to put some blame on Batman here. Also, let's come back to Riddler here for a minute. His identity crisis, he doesn't know who he wants to be, even though he has, you know, Riddler apparel decked out across his whole apartment, and he's so blind that he can't figure it out until he tries a lot of other stuff. Um, I've realized this movie, you don't want to ask too many questions, like how does Riddler know where Two-Face lives, because if he does, why can't Maybe maybe he's watching Riddler's TV set, I don't know. But nevertheless, there's a lot of questions that just go unanswered or are just illogical leaps. I get it, this movie, you're not really supposed to think too hard about it, but they're glaringly obvious. It is also kind of ridiculous that the Riddler is able to build a giant laboratory that Batman, I don't know if he knows about it, he's not trying to stop it at the very least, just kind of out there in the ocean like this giant 
blender, green blender lighthouse that doesn't come into play until the very end of the movie. Also, the Riddler wanting to like know all of this stuff based off of people's TV habit in their minds. I don't know if it's supposed to be a commentary on how, you know, 90s children were just starting to veg out in front of the TV and there's too many choices and, you know, corporations are sucking away their youth and their mind. Maybe that's what they're going for. It's not particularly compelling and it's not a great plot for any of these characters to be a part of. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another thing that stuck with me since I saw this movie when I was six was what I call the glow light gang. They always freaked me out. These glow light, you know, black light people. First of all, what what the heck are they doing in their in this movie? Second of all, their nefarious intentions with this girl always disturbed me. It's pretty frightening how they're chasing her down and going to do who knows what to her. Now, Robin does steal the Batmobile cruising for chicks, and he does stick up for her and tries to fight him, which I always thought was kind of a fun, rebellious scene. And of course, Batman comes flying in in really cool ways. These are the kind of ways I love seeing Batman just kind of flying in there like a bat. It's great. Of course, my biggest complaint with the movie is its wildly uneven tone. It is like this 90s toy commercial but it's also can be pretty dark and based off the deleted footage i've seen it would have been a heck of a lot darker and a heck of a lot scarier of a film especially that giant bat that eight foot tall bat that stares down uh bruce in the bat cave i think it's a great scene it's not in the theatrical cut but it does go back and forth between goofy and dark campy and serious it's too much of a dichotomy to actually work, but at least Schumacher's trying to do something here. At least something different. He's not going full bore dark like Burton did last time, which really was probably too far for a Batman film. One of the other things that I, I had remembered while watching the film that never sat right with me was the bad guys breaking into Wayne Manor was far too easy. They find the Batcave super easy and they, they destroy it. They blow it up. Of course, it's a ginormous cave, so they don't get all of it, but I'm just like, really? You can just break in to Batman's place and do all of that? I didn't like this at all. It's, it's just way too easy. And it also makes Batman look like an ill-prepared chump. Honestly, if these two dweebs can bust into his house like it's Revenge of the Nerds or something and they can go play this crazy prank on him, I don't like it. I'm of two minds on Batman Forever. My positive viewpoint is that Schumacher presents just as a compelling vision of Gotham City and its savory, or should I say unsavory, denizens as Burton. Maybe that's a controversial statement, but it's true. This Gotham is crazy looking, but I dig the overblown Gothic architecture. It's a lucid, nightmarish world. So for that reason alone, I appreciate we have Schumacher's Batman, but my negative thinking tells me these characters are either crazy over the top or dull as can be. Not to mention this story is both nonsensical and just uncompelling. I'm disappointed the story, at least as it's presented theatrically, is garbage. Even the characterization is either overly simplistic, reductive, or just a head-scratcher. I'm struggling to see many children seeing this movie in theaters really enjoying this plot or finding it interesting. There's probably enough action to keep their attention, 
but I struggled to see how any kid or adult would go away even remembering what the story was about, except Riddler sticking a green blender on people's heads. But I should say this is truly a successor to the 60s Batman TV show. Schumacher was probably a kid or, you know, a teenager when when that TV show came out. And this really seems to be him going back to that and making a spiritual successor to that. So in a way, because I do have a real soft spot for that TV series, I'm able to be a little softer on this film. Unfortunately, though, Kilmer brings essentially nothing to the role of Batman or Bruce Wayne. And this is a Batman movie. You need a compelling lead hero. That's a big disappointment. I appreciate Bob Kane was on set providing Schumacher with input and Schumacher was able to bring his unhindered vision to life by and large. I even appreciate the toyetic, purely 90s nature of the film, but it's not enough for me to recommend it. Batman Forever receives five stars out of 10 with a mild not recommend. I will say I do like this better than Batman Returns. So I did mention at the beginning of the review, I was going to talk about how and why I brought this one into my collection. Well, I have never owned this movie until now. I bought it as a part of a, oh, what, what would it be? A nine film set of all five Superman movies and these four Batman movies. I got it on sale on Blu-ray for 40 bucks with all the loaded with bonus features. So I do appreciate Warner Brothers didn't skimp on the bonus content. There's more than I'm even interested to check out, but plenty of bonus features and you get the movie in high definition. So for that case, I'm happy to have the film in my collection. You know, you take 40 divided by nine. This movie would have been about $4.44. So I'm happy to have this movie. Now, some other movie recommendations I have for you to check out after this one. Definitely check out The Cable Guy. This movie really is what got Jim Carrey big. The Cable Guy is, I think, more of a darker comedy than this. It's definitely more even, and I really like what Carrey does in that film. Uh, Matthew Broderick, Jack Black, I love Cable Guy. Check it out. I'm also going to be, once again, recommending Dark City. If you haven't seen that one yet, you need to go see Dark City. I think it pulls a little bit more from The Matrix or I think it actually came out before The Matrix, but Kiefer Sutherland's in there. It's got some Schumacher vibes, some Burton vibes. To me, it's almost like the best of all of these worlds. And of course, I'm going to be recommending Schumacher's Flatliners. That they, These two have a lot of similarities with their aesthetics, with flashbacks, with cinematography. Check out Flatliners. I know some people think that original movie is bad. Um, my wife didn't care for it. I did enjoy it. I did like it. Um... The remake is awful. Stay clear of that one. But the original, I think it's worth you checking out. So two years and four days, or 735 days in total, which really isn't that bad, audiences got to see Schumacher's follow-up vision, Batman and Robin. So why is Chris O'Donnell back as Robin, but Val Kilmer is no longer Batman? Join me next week to find out. Well, listeners, the question after the show, would you want to see the longer, darker, extended version of the film? I would. If they released this on a three-hour cut on digital, I would pick it up. I would be totally curious to see that. I have a feeling, I actually have a feeling it very well could happen because Coppola has been going back and recutting and 
releasing all of his films. We did get the Snyder Cut recently. We know it's not unheard of. Richard Donner, about 25 years later, was able to do Superman 2, the Donner Cut, which I have reviewed. I'll link to that down below as well. So there is precedent for a director going back and getting Sylvester Stallone just released Rocky IV, the director's cut. So there is precedent. I think we very well in the near future because the buzz is building, the demand is building. And honestly, it's another great selling point. They would probably release it on HBO Max first. Check out the darker three hour cut of Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever. Fingers crossed, I actually really hope we do get to see it. Well, listeners, thank you for joining me on my review of Batman Forever. I'm curious to know what you all thought of this movie. Make sure to send me an email. My email is listed down below. So make sure to shoot me off your answer to that question. And like I said, I will be coming back next week. In the meantime, catch up on the Batman reviews. Even go back and listen to those Superman reviews because that's the whole reason I'm doing this Batman series. Not because I just love Batman, but because... Where was Superman at at this time and where was Batman at as well? That's something we're going to explore and look in totality next week as I wrap this all up with Batman and Robin. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. And Robin is finally in the movie. There's another fighter jet that flew over, and those things are wicked loud. Right off the bat with the opening of this film is how toyetic it is. Gosh, more planes. And that's immediately followed up with him jumping just straight off the building. Oh my gosh, another plane. Nothing but jet fighters. It's the same jet fighter. God.